Hello everyone and welcome to today's Seed World Innovation Series webinar. My name is Alex Martin and I serve as the editor for Seed World and today I'm happy to be your host. Today we're talking about a really fun theme, designer crops on demand, risk management trait development with platform genetics. And thank you so much to platform genetics who sponsored today's webinars. Have you been looking for some solutions to help you during trait development? Well, that's what our speaker today, Mike uh, Poutler, is here to help us learn. In today's webinar, there, there are a couple of things we want to make sure you, you learn today. How deep variance scanning provides a platform for non-GMO trait development in any crop, that genomics, biochemistry, and consumer insight can be combined to accelerate product development, and innovative approaches to population development can shorten development timelines. So again, Mike Poutler, our speaker of the day, is head of genomic services for platform genetics. As head of genomic services, he's responsible for scientific operations and global business development. He takes pride in serving as a trusted discussion partner, working closely with clients on project design and execution by providing technical expertise in plant molecular genetics, genomics, and developmental biology. Now, during the presentation, you're probably going to have some questions for Mike. Feel free to type these questions in at any time in the chat box below during the webinar. We're going to address them in our Q&A presentation. We'll hold after Mike finishes his presentation. We also want to make sure you know, there's going to be a few poll questions for you throughout the presentation. These are gonna pop up in the chat box as well. So make sure to look out for those and uh, feel free to answer them when you see them pop up. And finally, just one last FYI for today. Um, our webinar is being recorded and will be made available at seedworld.com following today's proceedings. We're also gonna be sending out a, um, an email with the link to the webinar. So if you miss any portion of the webinar, don't worry, you will have um, the ability to go back and watch it later. But with that, Mike, I'm going to go ahead and let you take it from here. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Alex, for the introduction. And thank you, everybody, for joining today to talk about my favorite topic, trait development. So by way of introduction, Platform Genetics is a capable, comprehensive, and client-friendly trait development and genomics service company. We serve seed companies and plant breeders all around the world. And by working with us, our clients manage their R&D risk, expand their innovation capacity, access technology and expertise, and accelerate their variety development. We offer a comprehensive suite of services across genomics, bioinformatics, and biochemistry. And because of where we've come from, which is spun out of the Vineland Research and Innovation Center in Canada, which is a, a nonprofit totally dedicated to the world of horticulture, Everything that we do is deeply rooted in an understanding of plant biology, plant breeding, and variety development. And as a result, we offer a lot of uh, unique end-to-end -end multidisciplinary capabilities that you'll see on display today. First, a little bit of context about trait development and the global seed industry. Um, so the industry is very dynamic. There's a strong imperative for new varieties to chase yield, to feed a growing population, respond to a change in climate, uh, respond to threats like emerging pests and diseases. And if you think about industry trends right now, um, plant protein, 
cover crops, sustainability, the carbon balance of agriculture, consumer benefiting fruits and veggies, local leafy greens. All of these industry trends reinforce the need for new varieties with great traits that benefit producers, consumers, and the environment. And Platform Genetics is equipped with workflows to create designer crops through creating and accessing genetic variation. So everything from disease and pest resistance to improved consumer appeal and stress tolerance. So trait development. If you open your plant breeding textbook, there's probably a section on trait selection or mass selection, moving trait population averages. But really what we're talking about today is de novo trait development or creating a trait that didn't really exist before. So talking about creating variation because it didn't exist in nature, or if it does, it comes along with undesirable um, traits due to linkage drag or there could be crossing barriers. So three of the common approaches um, for de novo trait development, GMO or bioengineering, gene editing, and random mutagenesis. All of these are important tools in the, the toolkit, but we are gonna focus a lot today on random mutagenesis. Um, and all of these approaches sort of have a common workflow um, comprised of four steps. So gene discovery, trait creation, phenotyping, and, and trait integration. Um, and where we're gonna start the, the first part of our talk is, is focusing here in the trait creation phase. So um, by looking at workflows in population development and deep variant scanning. So why, why this, why this approach of mutagenesis? So non-transgenic mutation-based trait development is subject to minimal regulation globally, has a long history of safe use in plant breeding and broad consumer acceptance. There are more than 3,000 varieties registered that were created by some sort of mutagenic process. So ruby red grapefruit is a famous example of that. Furthermore, generally, you can choose the variety or the genetic background where you want to work, and that's important. Um, you don't have things like uh, transformation barriers or recalcitrants. Um, and if you think about it um, sort of at the product development level, non-GMO trait development may also be compatible or synergistic with the rest of the benefit bundle in a certain product. Random mutagenesis can be used in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, if you're a company that focuses on gene editing, you can use it as a proof of concept to advance targets into your gene editing pipeline, or you can flip it around and you can do a proof of concept with, with gene editing and then recreate variants through random mutagenesis um, that perhaps would follow an easier pathway to, uh, to commercialization or, or consumer acceptance. So thinking about how we induce variation using random mutagenesis, there's sort of two major buckets um, using chemical mutagens such as EMS or ENU. Um, and typically these induce single letter changes to the genetic code. And then there are also approaches um, that create larger deletions and, and rearrangements to the genetic code. Um, but typically uh, a lot of our energy and our expertise is around that first uh, bucket of chemical mutagens. One of the nice things about building populations with random mutagenesis is that they're dual use. 
So you can use them for forward or reverse genetics. Um, so forward genetics, you're typically screening mutated plants for a phenotype that interests you, and then working backwards to figure out the DNA change responsible. And in reverse genetics, typically what you do is obtain a mutant or a knockout in a gene of interest and see if it has the phenotypic consequence that you expect. So this is a, more of a hypothesis-driven approach. For both of these approaches, it's kind of important to go big. So you, you typically want to have large, powerful populations with high but tolerable uh, mutation density. And this is sort of where our experience and track record comes in. So the experience, the plant production expertise, um, the logistics, the organization, the infrastructure to support this, this type of population development. Um, so at the top, these are sort of some non-client confidential internal examples of, of populations that we've built. And I know there's a lot of numbers up there. So we can maybe just look at the first example, which is tomato on the first line. Um, so here's a population we built of almost 5,000 families. Um, and the mutation density, what this means is in this population, um, there's an average of one mutation every 260,000 base pairs per plant. So if you divide that number by the population size, you actually get a mutation density of one mutation every 56 base pairs across the population. And if you think about an average gene being a few thousand base pairs, um, you can see how you would pile up a very large number of mutations across a population such as this. Um, so we've done this in many, many different crops. So um, we've worked in over 30 crops uh, of all types, um, important plant protein crops like soybean, where we've done it in uh, commodity type soy and food grade soy, um, yellow pea, emerging oil seeds like camelina, vegetable crops like onion, lettuce, and carrot, staple crops like wheat, and a range of brassica species, everything from broccoli to Ethiopian mustard. Um, and we've, we've built these populations, uh, very large, up to 10,000 plants, and we have uh, a very strong track record of being able to balance a strong mutation density um, that sort of enables downstream success in trait development. So the way you know that we execute um, these projects and manage risk, um, a few different ways. Um, one of the first steps and most important is careful dose determination and seed to seed evaluation of plant vigor and fertility. Um, next, we verify mutation density with our deep variant scanning platform that we're gonna hear about later. We try to grow an excess number of plants to account for various types of attrition to hit the target population size. And we're good at leveraging our greenhouse, hoop house, and field infrastructure to take advantage of different growing seasons to speed up timelines. And also acknowledging that in, in some cases, um, you know, it may be beneficial to uh, have protected uh, greenhouse growth conditions for mutated plants um, to help them get off to their best start. Uh, other thing we're good at is sort of the expert handling of phytosanitary and import export logistics, working with clients and partners around the world. So, of course, we have unique offerings um, and twists and turns on these mutagenesis approaches. So, 
Um, some of these approaches are where we get to flex our expertise as geneticists and developmental biologists. Um, so one of the, one of them is transient mining of chimeric M1 populations, where our methods decrease chimerism and can be used to reliably detect and transmit mutations of interest. So this offers a few benefits. Um, there's speed, the shortened timelines to the identification of a mutant. And really what it offers is the flexibility to switch between different varieties instead of sort of um, being limited to one particular uh, permanent population resource um, in, in one particular variety. It also allows you to look at an unlimited number of plants for hard to hit targets, uh, very small gene targets, or targets where you're searching for maybe a very specific mutation. Um, and it basically allows you to uh, adopt an approach we call mine until you find, um, where you can keep mining an unlimited number of plants until you get the, the alleles that, that you really need in your program. Another unique twist and, and turn, um, we can use a technique like pollen mutagenesis to make large amounts, so thousands or tens of thousands of non-chimeric M1 seeds, all heterozygous for uh, induced mutations. Um, so this can be a really powerful way to create a, a long-term resource, a, a large bag of seed that you can return to again and again. You can also use this um, if you put your, your genetics hat on, you can use this technique to do genetic non-complementation screens. So you can actually use it to generate new alleles in a gene where you already have one mutation in hand. Other areas of active R&D um, and areas that we're looking um, to as opportunities for future service platforms, um, definitely accelerated microspore mutagenesis. So um, leveraging microspore mutagenesis to arrive at homozygous uh, mutations faster. Um, and then definitely woody species, buds and meristems, um, basically looking for fields of application for mutagenesis um, in, in some crops where it's been harder to apply those techniques in the past. So um, for these areas which are um, less mature as service offerings, we're, we're definitely willing to discuss, partner, um, talk about how to manage the risk of proof of concept experiments in, in these spaces and, and how to phase that type of project. So now we've looked at some of the ways um, that we create genetic variation. Um, through mutagenesis. Now it's time to look at a powerful approach for uncovering and exploiting it. So deep variant scanning or DVS is a set of lab and informatics protocols uh, which is basically designed to efficiently discover rare genetic variants in very large populations. So whether those populations are chemically induced or whether it's naturally occurring variation, this technique is patented in Canada, the US and Europe can see the patent number at the bottom of your screen. Um, you can email me if you'd like to, to see it or discuss in detail. But fundamentally, this is a, um, a large amplicon sequencing best, uh, based technique that has two fundamental steps. So a high throughput sequencing run to discover all of the variants that exist in a large population, and then a high resolution DNA melting based genotyping assay which independently verifies the mutations of interest and assigns them to an individual. 
So it's important to note that all of the informatics is KMER based and alignment free, which one makes it very fast and two differentiates the approach from uh, competing IP in the space. So it really makes it a unique approach to solving this problem. If we look at the advantages of the deep variant scanning platform, it is very fast. And once you have a, a DNA array in hand for a population, you can certainly turn around um, a large list of mutations in less than four weeks. It is reliable, thorough, and accurate. One of the nice things is it's very scalable in terms of the number of samples. So because there is no fixed three-dimensional pooling in our technique, um, you can do hundreds to tens of thousands of samples. You can also add samples at any time. So there's, um, you know, if you have a phased population, you're not locked into a certain configuration for the, um, you can always add to it. It's also completely flexible and scalable in terms of the number of gene targets. Um, so you can mine a single gene at a time, or, you know, we have cases where you can do 20 genes or more in a, a single run. So the flexibility is important. Um, we have uh, applied this across many different crops. So any gene, any crop, um, we've done it in dozens of crops with no usability barriers. So whether that's genome complexity, duplication, uh, or having no reference genome. Um, there's an example, there's a crop we've been working, uh, doing quite a bit of work in lately um, that basically has three copies of every gene. And those three copies are 99% similar. Um, but with modified workflows, we can keep the homeologous genes straight and re reliably uh, detect novel mutations at a population level. Another aspect of the flexibility and the advantages of our platform, um, because it's a large Amplicon-based technique, we can in include entire gene uh, regions, so exonic and intronic regions, um, and promoter regions. Here's a quick example of DVS technology at work. So really it's about sorting the, the signal of a mutation from the noise of a, a sequencing run. So in this example, reaching into a population of 5,000 tomato plants, pulling out a, a knockout in this DMR gene and confirming that it's generated powdery mildew resistance or, or tolerance where it didn't exist before. So if you look at the deliverables for a typical deep variant scanning run, really it's about generating an allelic series. So typically this is, um, the standard package would be five novel mutations per gene, but this is fully customizable. So if you want 10 or if you want every possible mutation um, that exists in a population, we can do that. Um, by an allelic series, what I mean is typically it's beneficial um, in genetics experiments to have a, a range of different types of genetic changes or mutations. So this can include premature stop codons, which generally equate with a, a full loss of function of, of a protein. Um, and it can also include missense mutations, splice site disruptions. And of course, we can characterize promoter uh, and regulatory mutations as well. We can also support this um, with custom visualizations. So uh, really strong informatics and computer science team um, can deliver uh, genome browser-based visualizations, protein models with uh, predicted effects, and things like that. 
and and then any of the downstream work can include um, you know genotyping and phenotyping lines of interest seed increasing and more so we saw uh, the speed aspect, right? It was really important. So starting with your own array of DNA or if the DNA is already in hand, just weeks to access that genetic variation. But if we put the two things we've talked about so far together, really starting from scratch uh, with a new crop and, and building a new population, in approximately 12 months, you can have in hand, you know, the dose determination, the mutation density check, your M2 seeds for thousands of lines, tissue and DNA archived and ready to go and complete that first DVS run, maybe with your first five highest priority gene targets knocked out. So for R&D leaders, this strategic outsourcing option has a lot of value because you can get to where you need to be much faster than, than building out that whole pipeline yourself. You can avoid adding to your own internal headcount so that you can focus on your core priorities. So really it's, it's, you know, offloading risk from yourself onto us and moving moving a trait development objective from your to-do list to your done list. Next, I wanna walk through a case study. Um, and this is an interesting case study um, that highlights a multidisciplinary integration of genomics, biochemistry, and sensory science. Um, so in this project, um, it's a Genome Canada funded project with Vineland Research and Innovation Centre and Laval University, um, which really set out to uh, create a genetic toolkit of variants to improve and differentiate tomato flavour. And this is in uh, greenhouse tomato on the vine type tomatoes. Um, so in this project, we identified over 100 variants um, in 20 genes involved in the biosynthesis of volatile compounds associated with consumer liking or disliking of tomatoes. And we did this again by tapping into that Vineland EMS population of almost 5,000 M2 families. So walking through step by step, first um, in this example, uh, we had a particular target gene, this HPL gene with a little bit of uh, a little bit of information and a little bit of an indication that, that this gene was involved um, in the production of a class of aroma volatiles correlated with consumer preference. So it was known that uh, the activity of this particular enzyme affects um, these C5 and C6 uh, volatile compounds. And it's the C5 that are um, correlated with consumer liking. So we reached into our population. Here's four of the genetic variants that we um, pulled out. So again, um, gets at that idea of an allelic series where you have a premature stop codon and a range of missense mutations. Now for um, the next step is sort of the, the biochemical profiling or phenotyping of those variants. And for two of the variants, um, it was biochemically validated that they did have increased C5 volatile production um, in the homozygous state. So that's a head-to-head -head comparison of the homozygous variants that we pulled out in our screen versus their wild-type siblings. 
Um, so two of the variants, one being that very early premature stop codon, which is denoted with the W39 stop, and another um, missense mutation, the, the proline mutation uh, denoted P110L, uh, which was predicted to be deleterious to, to protein function as well. So in the example uh, on the bottom left, um, this is just a, a quantitative graph showing the production of, of one particular uh, C5 volatile, which is associated with certain you know, pungent, mustardy, garlicky uh, type perception. Um, we can see uh, the taller bar on the left, um, an increased production of this particular chemical in the homozygous variant, which is denoted with the little a, little a notation, relative to its wild type siblings uh, next to it, which are denoted the big A, big A, and also relative to several uh, commercial and pre-commercial checks. Um, so all of that is to say that it had the biochemical phenotype um, that the researchers set out to create. Now the next step is sort of getting into the, the sensory um, evaluation. And this is where uh, it was confirmed that these are preferred variants. Um, so these tomatoes with this high C5 uh, volatile trait were perceived as significantly different in tetrad testing uh, conducted by trained sensory panels. Um, we also know that high C5 tomatoes are predicted to be preferred by consumers when projected on to the tomato preference map that the Vineland team created. Um, so that's the nice thing about those, um, the sensory groundwork that they laid before that, um, before getting into the trait development is that it does have predictive value. Um, so by going through all of those steps, um, we're able to um, validate that we did in fact have, um, you know, a preferred variant um, that met the sensory objectives um, that they set out to achieve. So I want to carry on from that case study. And by the way, that case study uh, is a good example. Um, if you, I think in the chat, if you look, um, there should be a link to sign up for our newsletter. Um, and that's the kind of story that you can keep up with um, when we have good news to share like that. Um, but carrying on from this case study, looking at our, our trait development workflow, um, Again, that gene discovery into trait creation, phenotyping, and trait integration kind of pipeline. Um, we do have a range of phenotyping services, including yield and agronomy, pathology, abiotic stress testing. Um, but we wanted to focus here on the metabolomics and how sort of moving beyond targeted analysis, um, by doing that, we can unlock the potential of metabolomics, both as an upstream gene uh, gene discovery tool, and also downstream as a phenotyping tool. Now, the key differentiator here for platform genetics is having a powerful metabolomics platform driven by true experts in plant biochemistry and biological pathways. So this ensures that massive amounts of data are distilled into insights and actionable next steps. So just a, a quick background on, on metabolomics. Um, you may or may not know, um, you know, there, there is no such thing as a true one-shot experiment in metabolomics. So relative quantification of all the metabolites in a biological um, 
sample in a single run is not yet possible. However, what you can do is achieve very broad coverage. So by combining um, a couple of different non-targeted approaches, really what this is about is utilizing complementary um, extraction and chromatography approaches to look at different uh, classes of chemicals. So, um, you know, there's a, a workflow for semipolar metabolites, a workflow for polar metabolites, and a workflow for nonpolar metabolites. And so by combining these complementary approaches, you can actually achieve a very um, broad and unbiased uh, look at the metabolome of a plant. Um, if that's not the, the desired um, outcome for an experiment, you can also just make sure that you tailor those uh, extraction and chromatography steps um, to focus in on the areas where you do expect to see a, a difference or you do have a biological question of interest. Now, if we look at our sort of typical workflow in metabolomics, um, typically the, the workflow is to compare a mutant and a wild type or two or more varieties, and basically uncover um, through multivariate statistics, uncover differentially accumulating metabolites, and then work towards identification of those metabolic features of interest um, through applying a, a range of mass spectrometry-based uh, techniques, so exact masses and authentic standards and things like that. couple more examples of how we have used um, metabolomics. Um, so circling back to sort of that um, tomato flavor example. So what I had shown you a few slides back um, was how we sort of had found some of the things that we had been looking for, right? Where, where we had successfully started with a hypothesis and uh, generated the trait that we were looking for. But um, inside of that project uh, where we created a large genetic toolkit for flavor improvement, we also found some unexpected things. Um, so in that project, um, the biochemists actually uncovered a new pathway leading to nitrogenous volatiles in tomato. Um, so this work, uh, two new genes were characterized and new pathways and intermediates um, were characterized. So basically entire, um, biochemical pathways were worked out and it it was not what was expected in the, the literature and not what was expected going in. But this is sort of the power of combining and backing up that metabolomics work um, with rigorous traditional biochemistry approaches, um, like being able to label precursors and, and follow metabolic flux. Um, so we have a really powerful, uh, really powerful biochemistry team uh, working on these types of problems. Just a couple more examples of um, the types of challenges that we can tackle through metabolomics. Um, so one of the, the types of um, projects that we've been doing recently um, would be evaluating the biosynthetic capacity for a plant uh, to make certain natural products. So um, for certain SynBio approaches or um, natural product uh, production approaches, you know, evaluating whether the plant um, platform can actually make uh, the desired compounds. Does it have the, the precursors? Where are metabolic fluxes going? Uh, what would you need to change to have the desired outcome? 
The other area where we've done a lot of work would be in the biochemical and genetic basis for unique flower colors um, and really uh, assisted with product development in that area. Um, and that's a good example where the combined understanding of chemistry with breeding and genetics can really drive uh, the value. Just wanted to come back to the sensory and the, con the consumer insights. Um, you know, that, that, um, those capabilities, that expertise uh, that we can pull in from the parent organization at Vineland. So um, really an expert team um, skilled at doing consumer preference mapping in horticultural uh, crops. Um, and again, like we saw um, in the one case study, um, the benefit being that these are predictive tools um, that can uh, really aid in deci decision making. Um, these tools can help with breeding selection and advancement criteria and can allow you to really adopt an approach that's basically sensory informed trait development target selection. And you can go through that, you can um, really iterate what, what we had shown you before. So um, use the deep variant scanning platform to make a change. You know, do the do the biochemical phenotyping to see did you make the change you wanted to? Can trained panelists tell the difference? Does it you know does it matter? And do consumers prefer that variant? So bringing it sort of full circle. Um, that team is also very skilled um, and experienced with sort of consumer and market insights generally to support the commercialization of biotech derived products. And all of um, what they do is is really deeply um, rooted. Um, in a lot of experience with highly variable horticultural products. So that's what sort of makes uh, their skill set unique relative to uh, other sort of uh, sensory scientists. So if we think about integrating what we've been talking about so far, um, pulling it all together, really what we can do is engage in design build test cycles. So powered by our offerings across gene discovery trait creation and phenotyping. And really what that would allow you to do is iterate between making changes, evaluating the effects and suggesting the next steps. Again, working towards that ideal product development. Um, so really what we like to do is adopt your innovation challenges as our own and accelerate your consumer driven product development. So we, um, in addition to you know, these unique technical offerings, um, we wrap this up in a very client-focused and friendly package and set of business practices. Um, so it's all done in a clean fee-for-service model. Um, there's no royalty or, or reach-through um, structures. We offer clear and frequent communication, and we offer expert project and risk management. Um, again, just wrapped up in client-friendly policies, all the data security, confidentiality, biosecurity that you would expect. Uh, client owns all of the data. It is not mined for our benefit or anyone else's, um, you know. So I think the, the technical offerings and the business practices uh, really complement each other. And you can look to us as a really capable external innovation partner. So before we move on to the question and answer segment, um, 
I just want to uh, recap the different ways uh, in which you can get in touch. And I, I'm sorry to, to beat everybody over the head with this, but just the way that these webinars work, if, if you don't get in touch with us, then, then we don't have a way to follow up with you. So please email uh, info at platformgenetics.ca with any of your inquiries or questions. Um, be happy to schedule an introductory chat um, to see how we can help and um, just to hear about your needs in, in trait development. Um, I will personally respond to all of those inquiries. You can also, I think you've already seen in the chat that you can sign up for our quarterly newsletter at platformgenetics.ca. Um, there's a link on our blog uh, page of the website, but once you're on the website, uh, there's also a big subscribe button at the very bottom of the website that you can basically access from any page. So as long as you make it to platformgenetics, .ca, you should be able to find it. Uh, please find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. The, the corporate uh, pages are under the handle platform at PlatformGen. Um, and then you're very welcome to find me personally on, on LinkedIn or at uh, Mike underscore Poutler on Twitter. Um, always happy to make connections and, and network within the industry. And I think what we'll do is we will um, kick it back to Alex um, to sort of moderate a series of questions and answers. Awesome, thanks Mike, great presentation. We're gonna kick off our Q&A section now. So if you have a question for Mike that you haven't asked yet, please feel free to go ahead and type it into the chat box now. We'll make sure we, we try to get to all of the questions that are asked today. Um, to kick this off, Mike, I actually had a, a question of my own. You know, you mentioned at the beginning of your presentation that one thing that can impact trait development is trends. Um, what are some of the trends that you're seeing influence trait development right now? Well, I think my favorite one to pick, pick up on is uh, consumer benefits. I think um, it's an area of tremendous opportunity um, to focus on the application of, of various biotechnologies and really um, positively talk about the um, the benefits that trade development can deliver directly to a consumer. So I think that's one of my favorite trends to to keep up on, and that's um, an area where you're going to see a lot of progress. And I, I think it um, there's a lot of interesting history and maybe missteps in some of the uh, commercialization and communication around bioengineered products in the the sort of fresh produce space. So. I think we're, uh, we're turning a corner and it's it's going to be a really interesting area to follow. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. I have another question from Kate Crosby. She actually asks two questions. So I'm going to start with the first, Mike, and then we can move on to the, the second. Um, what's an empirical example of DBS that went slash is going commercial if you're able to share that? So, you know, it's it's hard to to give examples when you have client confidentiality, um, but that's why we, we like to lean on the examples from the parent organization from Vineland where we can share those examples. Um, so those, um, some of those flavor variants and also some of the disease resistance variants that we generated um, using that tomato population resource and using that deep variant scanning um, pipeline. Some of those are very, very close to um, commercial release in uh, sort of locally adapted um, 
hybrid greenhouse tomatoes um, that are currently um, very close to commercialization. So that's probably the best example that I can share. Perfect. And then her second question was, have you ever considered licensing your own DBS discoveries for breeding? Yes, we did. Um, and we have um, part of the history, again, it's um, relates to the relationship with the parent organization Vineland, but um, that used to be my job before I uh, had the full-time role at Platform Genetics was, was leading uh, trade development programs inside Vineland. So at that time, there was more of an approach of creating trades that would potentially be interesting for the industry and actively pursuing out licensing them. Since we started the, the company Platform Genetics, we really shifted um, focus to 100% client focus essentially, and um, really shifted to adopting the innovation goals of others. And so um, that's allowed us to focus, that's allowed us to help um, seed companies all over the world achieve their trade development objectives. Perfect, thanks Mike. And then Mike, um, what, are, what do you find are the biggest challenges you come across in risk management trade development? And how, what are some of those solutions that y'all try to work on to solve some of those challenges? Yeah, it's, you know, when, when we profile the risk and, and think about how to ensure success, um, a lot of where the risk lies is in the biological material. So in those early phases where you have to generate very large populations of uh, these crops, and fundamentally what you're doing is you're trying to walk a line between inducing all sorts of genetic variation um, while also not compromising the plant too much. So it's a very fine balance uh, to be had there. Um, so we find a lot of the challenges, especially as we um, adopt the innovation challenges of others and move, you know, it, it can be a different crop every day of the week. Um, it's, it's really making sure that we have the plant production systems um, in place and tap into all of the expertise that, that we have to make sure that the, um, the crops are produced um, in the best way, um, given the unique challenges of the mutant background. And then, you know, it's like those uh, steps that I outlined earlier, um, just different things like checking on the mutation density at, at different times um, to know that you're on track. So risk management is, is what we do and um, offloading risk and, and making complicated things our problem is, is why people come to us. Perfect. Um, another question from the audience, um, do you have any back crossing steps during your breeding processes? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. Um, typically when you engage in um, this type of trait development that's based on random mutagenesis, um, you know, and, and you have this powerful technique to make sure, you know, you have a very specific mutation and, and you've knocked out your gene of interest but you do have background mutations. So um, there is always that integration, trade integration um, phase um, where each time you back cross these mutant backgrounds to the, the wild type, to the starting variety, you're basically leaving behind 50% of, of those background mutations. So um, with accelerated back crossing, with marker assisted back crossing to select you know, the 
the um, the plants that are most similar to the recurrent parents at each step, you can get back to normal um, relatively quickly. Um, so it, it's something that's pretty standard um, that we know how to navigate. Thanks so much, Mike. I have another audience question that kind of wants to go back to talking what we we kicked off our Q and A with that uh, with with trends. Um, they ask um, with the price of of whole genome sequencing dropping with new sequencers on the market. How do you see this affecting the genotyping market in general? Yeah, that's a that's a great question um, and. An important trend. Even the the last couple of weeks, there's there's been major major um, announcements from from the, the the equipment manufacturers in the sequencing space that are absolutely going to lead to um, reductions in sequencing costs. So at a high level, that's the direction that genotyping is going. Um, the sequencing is commoditized, and the sequencing becomes the easy part. And, um, you know, it's the analysis and the insights and, and the ability to handle large amounts of data that become a challenge. So, um, yeah, generally, I think that a lot of genotyping applications are going to switch from, you know, individual markers or you know, hundreds or, um, of markers to sequence-based uh, approaches, whether that's whole genome uh, sequencing or intermediate approaches. Um, but um, sequencing powers it all, for sure. Um, we're going to hop back over. I love it when we start hopping back between topics, but back to talking a little bit more about the breeding size, uh, uh, the, the the breeding side of things, Mike. Um, to get started, do you have to have a lower limit on the population size? That's a very good question. Very, very good question. So it's a bigger or better proposition. Um, because it's it's just probabilistic. The the more plants you can have in your population, um, and the higher mutation density you can achieve, um, that's what's going to make it more likely that you're going to have mutations in your genes of interest. Um, you know, and and you walk that line. You get the mutation density as high as you can without completely killing all the plants in in your population. And there's a real art to that. Um, so. Technically, you you certainly can start if you have your first 500 lines or a thousand lines. You certainly can start there and exhaust whatever variation is in that population. But you would be more likely to succeed if you were looking at 3,000 or 5,000 plants. Perfect. And Mike, I'm starting to see our audience questions kind of taper down. So I think we'll end today with one last question from me. Um, you know, we, we talked about a lot of things today, and um, I, I thought it would be fun just to end today by asking, you know, what is one thing you want to make sure our listeners walk away with today to to carry out into their, their businesses for the future? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, the final question. I think the the one thing I want everybody to, to walk away with is um, that we're a, a capable, um, comprehensive, and client-friendly uh external innovation partner. Um, I think that we have truly, truly unique um, technical capabilities that extend from end to end. This entire process from, you know, uh, the plant biology and, and production of, of generating thousands of plants all the way to that end consumer and everything in between. Um, so 
and and when we can match that with um, business practices that make sense for our clients in the industry, um, I just I would just would like everybody to get in touch. I absolutely love um, connecting uh, with readers, with R and D leaders and executives across the industry. So please get in touch. Let me know what where your needs are, how we can help. Um, we exist to help. Thanks so much, Mike. I think that's a great way to end our webinar today. Well, everyone, that is all the time we have today. I'd like to give a big thank you to Mike for joining us and to Platform Genetics for making this webinar possible. Just remember, if you'd like to keep it updated with news from Platform Genetics, make sure to visit their site at platformgenetics.ca slash news dash blog. Um, we'd also like to give a big thank you to everyone who participated and everyone who asked questions during our Q&A session. Um, I hope you found something that was of value that you can take home to your dinner table tonight and talk to your family with. Um, and just one last reminder that if you missed any part of this webinar and you'd like to go back and review it, it's going to be made available in a couple of days at seedworld.com. So thank you again, everyone. This is Alex Martin of SeedWorld signing off.